Well, we are about 12 days into the new year, give or take. Anybody still have any of their New Year's resolutions on the go? One. We had one hand in the first service, two. We're also about 12 days or so into the new year. Is anyone about 12 days, give or take, behind in starting a New Year's resolution? (laughs) The same hand. I've got one or two of those for sure. As we have just proved, and can all probably identify with, statistics say that 80% of New Year's resolutions don't make it to February 1st, and only about 8% of New Year's resolutions actually stick. So maybe it's looked like this for you for the last couple of weeks. You know, the gym in December is empty. January, again, we're 12 days in, so maybe the picture is trying to float back to the top picture of what the gyms around town look like now. We're spending the first three weeks of this year in a series called uh, New Year and New You. Uh, The basic premise is that whenever the calendar rolls over, uh, we tend to get into the headspace that we we realize something needs to change. It's a a new calendar. I can fix these things, whether it's maybe a massive overhaul in our lives or maybe just some subtle shifts or course corrections. The start of a new year seems to be a kind of a strong enough initiating force, if you will, to get us to think about these things. And one of the goals of this series is for us to recognize that that we can plan and make all the behavior modifications we want, but if we don't change the heart or the attitude behind the behavior, it's unlikely that any of those changes will stick. And so we started last week talking about the most important change that any of us could make, and that is putting our faith in Jesus. And we said that, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection offer us a chance to be born again, that is, to be made new in the Spirit. And we looked last week at, at John chapter 3, and we witnessed this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, who was a, a high-ranking teacher, maybe the, the greatest Jewish teacher in Jerusalem at the time. And, and they had this conversation where <clears throat> Jesus talked about the need for a new birth, to be both born of water and Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in that conversation, we realize that Jesus is highlighting the need for repentance, that is to be, be born of water, to be baptized, to, to, be, to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection, but also regeneration, to be born of the Spirit. Now next Sunday, Russ Wilson from our AGC association is going to be here, and he's going to talk about repentance from Psalm 51. But this week, we're going to look at this idea of regeneration, or sanctification, or the Spirit of God doing a work in us to help us to grow to be more like Jesus, like we were created to be. So if you have a Bible with you, or on your phone, or wherever else, uh, turn or click to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and let me read for us. If you need a Bible, there's some in the middle of the room. By all means, grab one of those. Uh, you can use that, keep that if you need. Galatians 5, starting at verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let me pray as we jump into this text. God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you that we have the Bible and that you speak to us through it. Uh, And Holy Spirit, as we look at this passage that talks about walking with you and the fruit that comes out of that, I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning. Uh, Challenge us, convict us, draw us to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we kind of parachute into a pasture, there's, uh, into a passage, as we've said before, there's, there's danger in starting in Galatians 5.16 without considering Galatians 1 through 5.16. So just a little bit of context here. Uh, right before these verses, right before verse 16, Paul is, is talking to this church and calling them to, to freedom. They're there to express the freedom that they found in their relationship with Jesus in, in loving service to others. So he's reminding them of this. And he's helping them grow in their life in the Spirit to understand this, this new birth that they have as followers of Jesus. And then in this passage that we just read, uh, Paul explains how this, this new birth comes through the work of the Spirit in us. And see, this church in, in Galatia, and maybe we can identify this in our own lives, in our own church as well, had, had started to drift into a faith that was, that was works-based. You know, we, we gather pretty often. We fill the room a couple times a week. We, we do these things. We give well. God must be happy to have us on His team. But Paul's reminding them to, no, forget that. He's calling them to this life in Christ and to a, a spirit-filled fruitfulness. And so as maybe you noticed, as we read the passage, this passage splits nicely into three parts, which every preacher likes, because three points is the perfect sermon. Kind of, I don't know, I'd like the Trinity or something, I guess, but three parts. First, Paul describes the need for us to walk by the Spirit. Second, he then instructs us, instructs them and us to observe the obvious. And finally, he tells them and us to, to remember the good news that believers belong to Jesus and possess the Holy Spirit. So that's sort of the roadmap of where we're headed this morning. First things first. He tells us that we need to walk by the Spirit. It's maybe, as we, again, as we read this, it's, it's kind of obvious that this passage is, about, uh, is focused on the Spirit and walking with the Spirit and living by the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And so before we jump in and break these first couple verses down, let me highlight for us again that this letter is written to the church. It's written to the Galatians. This is not sort of an internal communication from Peter to Paul saying, hey, listen, we're pretty good at this thing. We've got our lives sorted out. Let's now focus on this thing. He's saying this is for all followers. This letter and these verses are for everyone. The exhortation, the the encouragement here is for every person to live by the Spirit. Parents, grandparents, it's for you. Young adults, kids, teenagers, this is for you too. New believers, this is for you. Long time believers, we can grow in this as well. And so for me, right off the top, let me say that my challenge this week was to look at my life and say, am I walking by the Spirit? 
Where am I actually listening and discerning and going where God wants me to? Or where am I just saying, you know what? This worked pretty well for me in the past. Let's keep heading this way. There's a lot of work for me to do. This text is for everyone. Paul's telling all believers they need to learn this. And so, four important truths that Paul says about walking in the Spirit. First, it's a continual thing. In the beginning of verse 16, he, he talks about us walking in the Spirit. This is a, a constant thing. It means following and listening and submitting to God and submitting to the Spirit every day in the everyday stuff of life. It can mean walking into the grocery store and saying, God, who am I going to bump into today that needs a positive interaction with someone? The everyday mundane stuff of life, we walk by the Spirit. The Greek word that's used here for walk is something that means to to walk around after someone or to to walk in a a particular direction. Uh, In the days of Aristotle, his his students were known as peripatetics, which has kind of taken that Greek verb and add an ix on the end. They were defined by how they followed so closely in the footsteps of their teacher. And so for us as Christians to do the same, to walk by the Spirit, or to be led by the Spirit, means we follow our teacher around. We listen to him. We discern his will. We follow his guidance. Again, this isn't a, once you get the basics of the faith down, then you move on to this. This, this is normal for everyone. This is not a, a deeper life or a higher life. It's a normal Christian life. The second thing he says, in the second half of verse 16, Paul says, we walk by the Spirit so that we can conquer the flesh. Look how he puts it there. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What we need to realize here is there is no neutral ground here. We either go through life gratifying the desires, or or a better translation might be the over-desires of the flesh, or we walk around following the Spirit. It's an either-or thing. There's no middle ground. As one writer says, we're living in either one sphere or the other. Either we're submitting to the Spirit's leadership or we're gratifying our flesh. If we're submitting to the Spirit, we cannot gratify the flesh. He says, you cannot pray and look at pornography at the same time. The way you deal with your sin is not simply saying no to the flesh, but by also saying yes to the Spirit's work. You're either in one camp or the other. Now, this idea of flesh here is elsewhere talked about in our New Testament as sinful nature. Uh, it comes from the Greek word sarx, which I'm going to use a, a handful of times this morning, which is why I, I pointed out. Uh, and Tim Keller helpfully says this. He says, this, this flesh, this sarx, idea of sarx in the New Testament, when it's opposed to the Spirit, doesn't refer to our physical nature as opposed to our spiritual nature. But it refers to the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. The sarx is our sinful heart. Or rather, it's the part or aspect of our hearts which is not yet renewed by the Spirit. So we're not talking about meat versus spirit. We're talking about the stuff that's the the sin-desiring part of our lives versus the God-desiring part of our lives. And so to to conquer this flesh, to overcome the desires of the flesh, this doesn't just come from knowing right and wrong. I think we all probably know right from wrong, and yet we still battle with the flesh, don't we? It's not just about intellectually knowing what we should and shouldn't do. Instead, we need to overcome our sarks by asking and allowing God to change us from the inside out. 
to allow him to, to, to work his spirit in us and daily submitting to him so we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Third, in verse 17, he says, we walk by the spirit because this battle is intense. Uh, deciding to walk with Jesus, deciding to walk with the Spirit isn't a simple one-time decision we make and then it's all fixed, we're all good, we're all, uh, all in one camp and not the other. This is a constant struggle for us. And look how Paul describes it for us in verse 17. He says, this is a problem because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These things are opposed from one another and they keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so part of our problem is that that we take a casual approach towards conquering sin in our lives. We don't recognize the the daily fight between the desires of our flesh and the desires of our spirit. Because, I know, God, that's probably okay with this little sin here. But we cannot be complacent in this. We can't assume that that just because we've been following Jesus for a while or a a long while, that we're out of the fight. Okay, I made it through those first few years and now it's just going to be smooth sailing. But we're in this battle until Jesus comes back or we go to meet him. There was a, a paper a while ago that asked the, uh, an, the question to, to its readers, kind of in an editorial opinion page, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton uh, succinctly wrote in and said, I am. See, the problem isn't just, it's not just an out there problem, which I think we'd like it to be. That, that's true because then we don't have to deal with ourselves. But the problem is in here. It's our heart, it's our sarks, it's our flesh, it's our over-desiring things. And the reason the battle is so intense, Paul says, is because the flesh and the spirit have competing agendas. The flesh wants, you, wants to make it so that you don't do what you want. And so often we can, we can try and do good as believers and we realize that you know, we can actually cry out with Paul when he says in Romans 7, what a wretched person I am. Who's going to rescue me from this dying body? he says, I thank God that it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the beauty of it. Even if and when we feel overwhelmed and crushed by our sarks, by our desires of the flesh, by our sinful nature, in Jesus we are new creations. The battle rages on, but as we follow Jesus, we can have, as one commentator said, a substantial, significant, and observable victory over the flesh. So we walk by the Spirit because the battle is intense. But the Spirit longs to conform us to Christ. And ultimately, that's what we want as followers of Jesus, is to be more like Him. Finally, in this first section, we walk by the Spirit to be free from the law. Well, again, this is one of the dangers of dropping into near the end of one of the letters in the New Testament. What does Paul mean when he's saying, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law? Well, it may be actually better for us to translate that if, as but if you're led by the Spirit, to since... So, but since you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And if we had tracked through this whole letter so far, we'd see that, that, that those who are led by the Spirit are, are, aren't under the law, meaning they don't belong to the old era of redemptive history. There's a new thing, and we're going to celebrate that with communion a little bit later. There's a, a new covenant. Early in the letter, Paul talked about in chapters 3 and 4 that, that those who are living under the law, they're, they're, he describes them as being under a curse or under sin's power or under a guardian or, or in slavery under the elemental forces of the world and, and still needing redemption. But the point is that the life in the Spirit brings a whole new way to find life. We're no longer under this law, but we have Jesus. 
Now, this doesn't mean we have the freedom to just go and sin however we want because Jesus, but it brings us a freedom from the sin we do in Jesus. We can have new desires and, and a new, uh, new ability, new power to please God, and a new way to uh, bear the fruit of the Spirit out. We don't have to live under the crushing weight of the law and the rules that we have to measure up through, but rather we live under the dynamic power of the Spirit. So there you go. Four instructions on walking in the Spirit. The second part of the passage is on overcoming the obvious. And so Paul shows us in verses 19 through 23 that we can actually tell if we're walking in the Spirit or the flesh. And he gives us two lists, the virtues of the Spirit and the vices of the flesh. Now the first list, these works of the flesh are found in verses 19 to 21. And if we look closely at them, notice that they're not all actions. These works of the flesh can be just as much attitudes as actions. Notice too that they kind of fit mostly nicely into four categories. Talking about sex or sexuality, religion, like negatively religion, relationships, and indulgences. And again, these aren't hard and fast categories. Some float from one into the other, but there's some overlap. And these lists aren't exhaustive, which Paul points out by saying, and things like these at the end of the list. Now, when Paul was writing in the first century, to do this, to to give you a list of virtues and vices was, was common. It was a popular way of communicating. And we do find other lists like this in Scripture. But no two lists are identical, which should be important to us. And Jesus made it clear that, that all the things on all of these lists anyways, they're rooted in our heart. It's a heart issue anyways. And so it's not super important to dig deep and really define clearly what each one of these specific words in this first list are. So let's look at least just quickly at the four categories Paul gives us. First, in verse 19, he talks about sex and sexuality. It is interesting that Paul has three other lists of these vices, and this one starts all of them. Sexuality is number one in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Colossians 3 as well. And Jesus starts his list in Mark 7 the same way. Paul uses here the terms of of sexual immorality or moral impurity and sensuality or promiscuity. Uh, These words all emphasize a lack of restraint. They emphasize unbridled passions. As one pastor and commentator, Tony Morita, notes, he says, sexual sin is a major problem for many reasons. It's, it's sin with another person, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. It affects many others, not just the one who's sinning. It displays a graphic self-centeredness. It dishonors those who are made in the image of God. It violates God's pure plan for marriage, and it is totally opposite to the fruit of the Spirit, especially love. The second chunk, in verse 20, on religion. And again, we're talking about religion in a negative way when you put it here. Not as, as James writes in James 1, pure and undefiled religion are this, caring for, for the widows and, and homeless and, their, and being with those who need help. This is, this is negative religion we're categorizing here. And Paul specifically mentions idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry is when we trust, we've talked about this a couple of times recently, it's when we trust in anything that's not God to be a functional God. And a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking around in in Deuteronomy, we, we said that trusting in the works of your hands, your abilities and your skills, and maybe your ability to create or or generate, constitutes idolatry as well. 
Whenever we're putting our, our hope, our faith, our everything in, in something that's not God to be our God. Uh, sorcery or witchcraft, depending on your translation, is, is trying to manipulate circumstances or dark powers to bring a desired goal instead of trusting in God for those things. As one writer notes, uh, today people read horoscopes to find meaning, and many believe superstitious actions will somehow manipulate circumstances. A maybe silly example of this, but I suspect last night around 7 o'clock at the Saddle Dome, is it still a Saddle Dome? The Saddle Dome in Calgary, uh, 20 heroes in copper and blue taped their stick just the right way, put the right skate on before the left, whatever it was to get ready to go out and try and influence the circumstances of that game. I don't know if they quit early or they didn't do enough, but they lost. It was mentioned to me that also a certain fan living up on Wilson Way, uh, married to Stan, uh, put on her Sean Monahan jersey and some other uh, t-shirt and her something else socks. And the only thing she didn't put on was her red flames wig. So, I mean, again, it might be silly, but superstitions, right? Tony Marita again says, idolatry is not merely a vile practice of those in other religions. It's a heart issue. People commit idolatry when they look to something other than God to give them what only God can give them. These desires can be good things, including salvation, peace, security, joy, and provision. He goes on to mention that money, mentioned throughout the Bible, is a big idol today. And in his context, on American money, it may say, in God we trust, but in reality, many of us trust in the bills themselves. The next category, the third category here, is on relationships in verse 21 and 22. And here, this is the longest list. We have eight words that describe how, how the flesh, how our sinful nature destroys relationship. Four of them are attitudes. Talks about selfish ambition, selfish ambition or enmity, envy, jealousy, and hatred. And four describe the results of those attitudes: discord or, or being argumentative or picking fights, uh, fits of anger or outbursts of anger, uh, dissensions, which is what anger leads to, and divisions or factions, permanent parties, and, and warring groups. And finally, in this list, the category number four is the indulgences of verse 21. And Paul specifically mentions a drunkenness and orgies and then ties on that and other things like these. Not being able to control our appetites demonstrates a life dominated by the flesh and not the spirit. And Paul closes this section with a warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're living under the rule of the flesh, that is a problem. And he is referring here to, we need to make this distinction, habitual practice, not infrequent and repented lapses. Tim Keller helpfully says for us, for someone to continually indulge the sinful nature without battling against it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them and the Spirit has not renewed them. But in this text, Paul is not looking to undermine Christian assurance here, but he's aiming to banish complacency. And we, we can't passively walk with the Spirit. We can't passively battle spin, uh, sin in our lives. Keller also points out that we could break this list down into two categories. Things that religious people do, selfishness, envy, je- jealousy, factions, and things that might be more characteristics of, of non-religious people, immorality, drunkenness, although I think that line is pretty blurred between those two. But the point is... God doesn't make distinctions like we do sometimes. Well, my sin's better than their sin out there. 
all of these things are problems. Then we come to what is often, I think, the greatest word in Scripture, the beginning of verse 22, but. We just come through this list of, man, look at all this ugliness in my life. But. To be a people led by the Spirit is to change and to be changed and to be continually changed and to be headed towards being the people we want to be. And when the Spirit works in us and through us, and when Christ-like character starts developing, it is liberating. It's freeing. Because it's bringing us to who we're supposed to be. It's bringing us to, to who we were designed to be. And so we've got these couple of verses, 22 and 23, that are they're common verses. We've probably heard them before. The, the fruit of the Spirit. And when we come to them, again, maybe especially because they're familiar, we need to remember that, that Paul is always very careful with his words. And very careful with how he chooses his imagery. And so pay close attention how we talked about the acts or the works of the flesh. But now he speaks about the fruit of the spirit. There's a difference there, right? He didn't use the, here's the acts of the flesh, here's the acts of the spirit. There's There's a separation there. By using the singular word fruit, he takes us into the world of agriculture and tells us, I think, four things. First is this. Again, I'm helped from, by uh, Tim Keller here. That Christian growth is gradual, which is really encouraging to me. And this, I think, is one of the hardest parts. When we, if we went home and, and planted a seed, we wouldn't measure the seed's growth with a stopwatch because we'd just be sitting there forever, right? It's kind of that watch pot never boils type thing. And the same goes for our development in the Spirit. It may happen overnight. We can definitely, they're, they're, God can do unbelievable things and our spirits can be changed in an instant overnight. I, I'm not sure that that's been the case for me, generally. But who we are today is, is more commonly a combination of the days and, and weeks and months and maybe even years of, of small decisions, of discipline, of, of course corrections that bring us to who we are today, of, of small bits of the Spirit working in us and through us to bring us to where we are today. And this is why we have to be in community. Because it's really easy for me, even this week, to look back at the last two, five, ten years of my life and say, man, have I really changed at all? But hopefully, I can go to those I've allowed into my life close enough and they can say, no, Sean, you you used to be like this in this area and now God's done this. If we're trying to do this thing alone, we don't have that. The second thing uh, is growth is inevitable which is also pretty encouraging. There's a story of a man who, who, who passed away and he was buried under a marble slab. And somehow an acorn got into his grave with him. And over time that acorn grew and eventually it split open the marble and burst through. Now in a bet on day one without that stopwatch, who would bet on the acorn defeating the marble? Not me. 100% not me. Well, this is a good analogy for us too. If we are followers of Jesus, we are being transformed by the Spirit at work in us. And fruit will grow. And I hope this is even encouraging. If you, can, if you look at your life and, and, and think of your sinful nature, think of that sarks as the marble slab. These habits, these traits are hard to deal with. It's hard to break habits. It's hard to rewire the brain. But that little acorn's growing. And the growth is inevitable as the Spirit works through us. 
A third thing, the fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. These things are not uh, traits or characteristics. Sometimes I think we can categorize them. Well, I know this person. They're really joyful. They're really self-controlled. They're really uh, gentle. Well, I'm not those things. But I'm kind and, and good and whatever else. Right? These, these, it, there's a difference. This goes much deeper than that. The fruit of the Spirit is different than gifts or skills. We can't kind of work our way into them to earn them and and grow in them. As we consider this, it is important to note that love is the first part mentioned. The first aspect of the fruit mentioned. Many suggest that, that after the first one, the order in this list doesn't matter. But love is most important. Elsewhere, Paul writes to a church in in Corinth, a church that over-desired certain gifts. And he said, listen, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong. I am nothing and I have nothing. Finally, Christian growth is symmetrical. These aren't nine things we get to pick and choose from. Well, I, I choose peace. Sounds good. I choose goodness. I don't want to be gentle. I don't want to, you know, kind, that sounds soft. We don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to grow in one without all of them growing as well. And so with that kind of quick overview, let me run super quick through each aspect of the singular fruit of the Spirit. Again, helped tremendously by Tim Keller. The first one is love. This means serving others, serving someone for their good because of their intrinsic value. It's not because of what they can do for you. The opposite of love is fear. Uh, The counterfeit of love is a selfish affection where you are attracted to someone or or treat someone well because of what they can do for you. Second is joy. This is delighting in God just because of who He is. The opposite is is hopelessness or despair. Uh, The counterfeit would be elation through experiencing the blessings. Ah, good things come, so uh, I'm happy. The counterfeit is that these, uh, the elation or joy comes through experiencing blessings, not the blesser, which, as you can imagine, causes mood swings when our circumstances change. Third, peace is confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than your own wisdom and control. Peace replaces anxiety and worry. A fake peace is indifference or apathy or not caring. Fourth, patience, and I really appreciated this. Patience is the ability to face trouble without blowing up. I need more of that. The opposite of patience is resentment towards God and or others. The counterfeit of patience is, is cynicism or a lack of care. You know what? This issue is too small to care about. Why are we making a big stink about it? Fifth, kindness. Kindness is the ability to serve others practically in ways that actually make me vulnerable, that cost me something. Its opposite is envy, which means uh, I'm unable to rejoice in someone else's joy. And the counter, counterfeit of kindness is, is manipulative good deeds, doing, doing good things so I feel good about myself, or, or that these good things make me good enough for others or for God. Sixth, goodness or integrity is being the same person in every situation other than not being a a phony or a hypocrite. Seventh, faithfulness is is similar to to loyalty or courage. It's to be reliable, to be true to your word. Its opposite would be being an opportunist, to be a friend only in good times. And its, its counterfeit is being loving but not truthful. 
So that you're never willing to confront or challenge someone, which again is a fascinating idea in our culture today where we can't really confront and challenge our culture tells us, right? Everything's good. Everything's right. Eight, gentleness or humility or self-forgetfulness. Its opposite is to be superior or be self-absorbed. And it's not the same as inferiority. And finally, nine, self-control. This is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, which is something as emails come in and phones beep and messenger goes off, is, is re- that's a really hard thing, something I struggle with, to, to chase after the important over the uh, seemingly urgent things. And to pursue the important rather than being impulsive or uncontrolled. And it's slightly surprising, but a counterfeit of this is a willpower that's based on pride. And the need to be in control. We can sort of feign self-control by being so controlling that it's actually our prizing. I've got this. There's a difference there. And when we look at these nine things, at the fruit of the Spirit, I think we see that, that they are kind of all connected. We can't really have one in isolation from the others. And I suspect, and again, maybe this is just me, that as we go through those lists, we can see that we're in far more need of growth than we think. So Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, and he gives us the marks of the flesh, he gives us the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, and tells us to observe the obvious. And so we need to ask ourselves, is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Is Jesus' character being formed in you? And I trust and and hope that you can say with me, yes, it is, but man, there's room for improvement. And we trust the Spirit to do that in us. If we stopped here, I looked at the clock and said, sorry, uh, we're shutting the doors. We could all walk out thinking, that was not helpful at all. Maybe it was helpful. That doesn't make me feel good. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot. I mean, there's got to be something else here. So let's carry on just like Paul does. Because there is good news in this passage too. He reminds us in verses 24 to 26 to remember that good news. He wraps up this this section Paul does telling the believers that that they should recognize that, that in Jesus we have hope and we have power in our new identity. This new birth that Jesus has brought means we are neither hopeless nor powerless. And Paul says two things to encourage us. He he reminds us in verse 24 that believers belong to Jesus. All that is his is ours as well, which is indescribable, unfathomable. Our approval, our welcome into the family of God isn't because of our character, isn't because of our actions, but it's because of his. Uh, Tim Keller again, helpfully says, we are free because of Jesus. We are free to acknowledge where we have given up ground to the Sarks in our lives. We are free to confess where we have not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. And we are free to realize that where we have confused our gifts or natural character with the fruit of the Spirit. And we can do all these things because we belong to Jesus. And also, because we belong to Jesus, he says that we have crucified our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, with its passions and desires, or, or literally its, its over-desires. That means that we can, we can look at our lives, and we can identify those things, and, and dismantle those things that have become idols in our lives. It means putting an end to the ruling or attractive power of those idols over us. 
Crucifying the flesh is about cutting out sin at the root. It's about going right to the motivation level. The thing behind the thing. Just like we talked about at the beginning. We can, we can work really hard to change behaviors. But if we don't change the heart or the attitude behind those behaviors. Chances are we'll just wind up back in our original behavior. It means that we have to ask ourselves not just what we do wrong. But we have to ask ourselves why we do it wrong. Ultimately, if we really think about it and really inspect this in our lives, we are, we're disobeying God to get something we feel like we just have to have. Or we're disobeying God because we feel like we, we deserve something and God's holding out on us. Something we're over-desiring. We, we believe that this thing that, that God's holding out from us is, is, is what we need to authenticate us, to give us meaning and value and purpose and identity. Keller gives us this helpful prayer. He says, To crucify our sinful nature is to say this, Lord, my heart thinks I must have this thing, otherwise I have no value. It's a pseudo-savior. But to think and feel and live like this is to forget what I mean to you, how you see me in Christ. And so by your Spirit, I will reflect on your love for me in Him until this thing loses its attractive power over my soul. We belong to Jesus. And finally, in verse 25, we read that we possess the Spirit. 25 says that we are to, to keep in step with the Spirit. This is, a, this is an active word. It's, it's a positive process, too. It's, we don't just give things up and go on, but we actually gain some things as we walk with the Spirit. This is an active process. It's something we do. You, you can't keep up with someone if you're not moving. So there's some, some effort and activity that goes into this. And it's more than simple obedience, although it's certainly not less than obedience. We need to, to recognize that, that the Spirit is a living person who is at work, who is at work in us, and who, who glories in and magnifies the work of Jesus. And so as we look at our lives, and as we pinpoint these over-desires, we then turn them over and replace them with Jesus. There's a... a, a, a an old Cherokee story of, of a grandfather sitting with a son saying, uh, within in my soul there are these two wolves that are battling. Uh, battling. And one wolf is, he basically says the, the, the works of the flesh. All these things, anger and, and whatever is in there. And this other wolf has all the good things, basically the fruit of the spirit, essentially. right? And, and they're fighting. And the grandson says, well, Papa, who wins? And, and he says, the one that you feed. That's a nice, great story, but there's more to that, right? We know the end of the story. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Look at verse, uh, sorry, 1 John 4, 4 reminds us that the one who is in you, the spirit that is in us, is greater than the one in the world. This battle that rages on in us, it's not one that we don't know the outcome. Jesus has won. The battle will rage on in our lives, but the war is won. As we start to shift towards the communion table, one last time from Tim Keller here. He says, We must worship Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. We adore Him, with, we adore him until our hearts find Him more beautiful than that object we feel we have to have. And as we do that, we put to death our old Sark's nature, clearing more room for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. And we'll find that fruit growing changing us more and more into the people we long to be and the people God desires us to be. Let me pray for us. 
God, thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for this text. Spirit, we ask that you would come and work in our lives. We know that you are. I ask that you would show up and reveal yourselves to us, the things that you are trying to point out, the areas you're trying to draw us to and draw us out of and from. Thank you that we have our Bibles and we have this text that can challenge and convict us and draw us to you. Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you came to, to show us what a life filled with the Spirit looked like. That you came to show us how to rightly relate to, to God and others and creation. And thank you that, that you were obedient even to death on a cross. Where you take all of our, our sin, all of our over-desires, all the ways that we have rebelled against God and thinking that, God, you're holding out on me in this thing. I want this thing. I know how to lead my life better than you. Thank you that that price was put on your shoulders, Jesus, and you died on the cross for us. And even more, thank you that three days later, that's not the end of the story, but you were raised again, conquering Satan's sin and death, and now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding and praying for us so that we can have the Spirit of God in us, working through us, doing a work in us, drawing us to you. And as we are about to consider the bread and the cup, Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken and your blood shed for us making this new deal. So we're no longer under the law, but we are uh, grafted into your family by your work for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.